Obstructive sleep apnea can not only disrupt sleep, but can also lead to poor quality of life and other consequences like motor vehicle crashes. There are good treatment options, but proper diagnosis is needed first, and obstructive sleep apnea is likely underdiagnosed in Canada. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Sachin Pendarkar, sleep and respiratory physician at the Foothills Medical Center's Sleep Center and Associate Professor of Medicine and Community Health Sciences at the University of Calgary. Dr. Pendarkar co-authored a review article published in CMAJ on diagnosis and management of obstructive sleep apnea. I've reached Dr. Pendarkar in Calgary to discuss the findings of the review. Hello, Sachin. Hi, Kirsten. Tell me, how is obstructive sleep apnea defined? So obstructive sleep apnea is a uh, chronic disease, um, typically characterized by um, episodes of uh, obstruction in the upper airway. And these can be partial or complete. Uh, And typically what they lead to is uh, disruptions in airflow when we breathe. They can be complete uh, disruptions or complete cessation in airflow. We call those apneas or uh, significant reduction in airflow, which we call uh, hypopneas. Now, when it comes to actually making the diagnosis of sleep apnea, we tend to look at the number of apneas or hypopneas in an hour. And this is something that's called the apnea hypopnea index or AHI. Of course, this is all during sleep. There are many definitions of obstructive sleep apnea uh, that you might read about, but the the most uh, commonly used one that that, uh, is recommended in guidelines is that sleep apnea be defined by an apnea hypopnea index of five events or more per hour uh, when accompanied by clinical symptoms or complications of sleep apnea, and we'll talk about those, or uh, an apnea hypopnea index of 15 or more, even if there are no symptoms. Is this a common condition? In fact, uh, obstructive sleep apnea is very common. So when you look at the population-based studies, they've uh, suggested that as many as one in four people uh, have a sleep test suggesting a diagnosis of, of obstructive sleep apnea. And that a significant proportion of those, at least a quarter of those, have uh, significant symptoms. Uh, In Canada, a survey conducted by the Public Health Agency of Canada suggested that 3% of adults uh, have a diagnosis of sleep apnea. Um, But interestingly, in the same survey, uh, 26% of individuals uh, reported symptoms or clinical features that would be associated with a high risk of sleep apnea. So things such as uh, obesity or uh, high blood pressure. So, so in addition to uh, a high population prevalence, there's actually a significant underdiagnosis of the condition, uh, which may be due to under-recognition by patients uh, or healthcare providers or other factors. And, and the studies suggest that it, as much as 80% of the population of patients with sleep apnea are undiagnosed. That's rather worrying. Who's at higher risk then? So um, there, are, there are a few uh, common risk factors and, of course, um, some, some less common ones. Probably the most notable one is is overweight or obesity, particularly when that weight is concentrated in the midsection or in the neck. Um, so that that would be the, the far and away the most common risk factor that that we would uh, be think of, uh, think about. Um, but the second group of patients that you know we might not think about routinely, but in whom we should suspect sleep apnea would be people with craniofacial features that could predispose to that upper airway crowding or obstruction that I mentioned earlier. So the most common ones would be people with uh, a jaw that's Positioned posteriorly, someone with a small jaw, someone with a large tongue. We uh, sometimes think about tonsillar hypertrophy, um, although this tends to be more of a risk factor. In fact, a very common one in children and much less common in adults. 
Okay, so signs and symptoms. What are the signs and symptoms that patients and clinicians should be looking for? So um, one of the things about sleep disorders that uh, may be a bit unique compared to other, other conditions is that we may not actually know what's happening when we're sleeping. So um, I guess the first point would be that uh, a history from the patient is really important, but bed partners are extremely valuable in, in providing that uh, additional information if, if possible. So the most frequent symptoms that might be reported by a patient would be uh, sleepiness during the day, um, unrefreshing or disrupted sleep, uh, possibly fatigue. And there's usually a history of snoring or uh, witnessed apneas by a bed partner or um, you know, people that they might be uh, vacationing with, for example, uh, that sort of thing. Um, patients may also report actually waking up because they're choking or gasping, um, and that can be quite a helpful finding when, when it is present. But other things are that might, be, might not um, uh, trigger someone to think of sleep apnea but can be related include nocturia, morning headaches, poor concentration or memory, uh, mood disturbances. Um, so there are other things that are consequences of sleep apnea that certainly could be an indication that that's what's going on. As far as the physical exam, uh, the common things that uh, we would look for would be, as I mentioned, central overweight or obesity, uh, crowding of the oropharynx, as mentioned earlier. Um, otherwise, the physical exam is typically focused on some of the consequences of untreated disease, so things like hypertension, um, evidence of cardiovascular disease, atrial fibrillation, and so on. Right. So I'm just curious about nocturia. Is that because people are getting up in the night um, for, because they're waking themselves up and then going to the bathroom? So, so that's, a, that's a great question. It, it can sometimes be difficult to tease apart. Is it that they woke up and then when they're awake, they just get up to go to the bathroom because that's what a lot of people do? Or, or is it actually something inherent in the disease? And so we know that there is um, uh, increased sympathetic drive uh, during, uh, during these obstructive events that can increase levels of, of atrial natriuretic peptide and other factors that would lead to the uh, nocturia. So there are actually biological reasons why this, this might happen in addition to just waking up and then sort of deciding to go to the washroom. I guess another comment to make would be that um, the correlation between symptoms and the severity of sleep apnea is actually poor. So it's important to keep a high suspicion, even in a patient who might not have a lot of symptoms, if they have some of these other things that might suggest uh, a sleep apnea. So they may not be sleepy, but they may have some of these other features, like nocturia, for example. Um, and there are some relatively easy-to-use tools, um, the sleep apnea, clinical score, stop bang, and others that actually may be helpful depending on the clinical setting as well. Right. And another thing I wanted to ask you about was snoring. So snoring is very common, but doesn't always necessarily mean that you have um, sleep apnea. How frequently is snoring related to obstructive sleep apnea? Um, it is, it, it's, it's on a spectrum. So um, when you get narrowing of your airway from that um, sort of upper airway obstruction, um, you get turbulent airflow, there might be some vibration of tissues in the pharynx that can lead to snoring, but it may not be disruptive to sleep. It may not lead to um, a significant enough reduction in airflow to actually show up on a sleep test. Um, so there are definitely a lot of people that snore. Some of those will have sleep apnea, but, but I would say it's the minority. How does one get diagnosed? So as I mentioned, the, the main measure of, of diagnosing someone with sleep apnea is, is the apnea hypopnea index, or AHI, so the number of events per hour. And there are some related measures depending on the type of, of testing equipment that's used, and there are some different tests. So the gold standard would be um, laboratory-based polysomnography. So this would be the in-laboratory traditional sleep study 
that uh, where the patient comes in, spends the night in the lab, they're hooked up to electroencephalogram, electrooculogram, uh, EMG, and a number of respiratory channels, and they sleep in the lab. There's a technician there who sort of watches over things. Um, there may be even a titration of treatment on the night of that study, but but that would be the traditional study. Uh, one of the there are a few challenges with that model. Um, it gives you information on not just sleep apnea, but kind of everything that might be going on during sleep. But you know, it's it's costly. Um, patients don't always sleep that well in the lab, and and access may be quite difficult, and that varies uh, across the country. But but um, the access to testing, if the resources are limited, may be difficult. And so um, what's increasingly being used now for uh, certain patients is uh, home sleep apnea testing. So um, this would be limited to cardiorespiratory channels, so um, pulse oximeter that'll measure heart rate, some measure of airflow, um, and possibly uh, measures of respiratory effort or, or um, respiratory and abdominal movement. Um, so these are called home sleep apnea tests. Some people call them level three studies. Um, and uh, they're obviously much more focused in terms of their diagnostic use because of, uh, because of the fact that they only measure cardiorespiratory channels. So these, these uh, home sleep apnea tests are used in most of Canada with polysomnography typically used as a backup in that situation if there's a clinical suggestion of something more complicated uh, than just straightforward sleep apnea or if there are technical issues, false negatives, that sort of thing. Um, but it's really important when deciding kind of which of those tests to use that that um, there be a clinical probability assessment before moving on to to send someone for a test. So the home testing is really only indicated for patients with a reasonably high suspicion of uncomplicated sleep apnea. Um, and if that's not the case, then really polysomnography is, is the uh, appropriate test. So it's an extremely valuable test. Um, but if it's used inappropriately, it can lead to misdiagnosis through false negative test results or perhaps incorrectly classifying someone as having as having sleep apnea when in fact they have another type of sleep disorder breathing. Right. What I get out of what you're saying is that these tests are really expensive. Um, and in another article that you have co-authored that's coming out in a, a short space of time, you're looking at the differences in funding across Canada for obstructive sleep apnea testing. How do different provinces fund the diagnosis of sleep apnea? So, so it's actually quite variable uh, across the country. Um, when when you look at a province like Ontario, for example, there is you know public funding for uh, polysomnography. Um, it's it's uh, pretty well funded actually compared to the rest of the country, and so there it, it is still the the predominant test that's used. Um, and there isn't really a lot of a there isn't really much of a market for home sleep apnea testing, and there just it really isn't used very much because access is is it can be better uh, and um, and uh, it's it's well funded. When you go to other parts of the country, um, you get a very you get a lot of variability in in the funding models. So um, you you have places where uh, none of the testing is publicly funded, places where it's funded only in certain facilities, and then some places where there's funding for polysomnography, but not for home sleep apnea testing. Um, so it's quite variable, actually, depending on where you go. And so we end up with a lot of variability in the diagnostic pathways that patients take. Can you tell me about the dangers of going undiagnosed? Sure. So so several studies have actually highlighted the complications of, of untreated sleep apnea or, or not having a diagnosis, particularly for patients with moderate or severe disease. So these would be patients with that apnea hypopnea index of 15 per hour or greater. So um, the most notable one uh, would be um, cardiovascular risk. Um, the risk is about two to three times higher in patients with sleep apnea compared to patients without. And we're talking about things like myocardial infarction, stroke, 
congestive heart failure, and, and even cardiovascular death. Um, some of those are more specific to severe sleep apnea, so patients with 30 events or more per hour. But when you look at the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, hypertension, uh, resistance, uh, things like atrial fibrillation, those are, are increased even in patients with moderate disease. Now, the other group of complications uh, relates to symptoms. So patients who have sleepiness, fatigue, poor concentration or memory, these are symptoms that can lead to um, poor quality of life, can uh, lead to depression, and certainly can have broader impacts, like you mentioned earlier, uh, doubling the risk of motor vehicle crashes, uh, increasing the risk of workplace injury, and as we're starting to learn now, um, even um, compromising productivity in the workplace. Um, in, in select populations, you can, um, you know, sleep apnea that's untreated can increase the risk of complications. So, for example, there is an increased risk of uh, post-operative complications in people that are undergoing surgery. Um, there are some complications related to pregnancy as well um, uh, if patients are not diagnosed. So, so in select populations, there are some risks, but more broadly, we talk about things related to symptoms and then things related to cardiovascular risk. Okay. So treatment, treatment is, um, is it easy or is it difficult? And what are the different treatment options and which are tolerated better than others? Sure. sure. So I, I'll, I'll start with maybe the second part of that question, um, that there are a few treatment options. So um, the main treatments that uh, are offered usually are, are continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP, um, oral appliances or otherwise known as mandibular advancement devices, so dental uh, devices made by uh, dentists, um, and upper airway surgery. Now there are some more conservative things that can be uh, that can be offered. So things like weight management and weight reduction, uh, weight management for patients that are overweight or obese, um, reduction in the use of alcohol or um, sedative medications. These are more general things that that are uh, that are likely to have broader health benefits. But when we talk about the specific treatments for sleep apnea, so CPAP, oral appliances, and upper airway surgery, there definitely are differences. So. The first, there are many considerations we need to take when we're offering or suggesting treatments. The, one of them would be the, the severity of the disease. So patients with really severe disease uh, or with severe disease should be offered CPAP as a first line because there's stronger evidence for clinical benefit, particularly around some of the cardiovascular risk that I mentioned earlier. Um, but if a patient in that category, severe severity category isn't responding or doesn't want to wear the treatment, then uh, oral appliances would be a, an appropriate second line therapy for patients with severe disease. When you get to moderate disease um, or milder disease with, uh, with symptoms, then CPAP and oral appliances are both very appropriate uh, therapies. What I typically will uh, suggest to patients is that if they're going to have a trial for moderate disease, they try CPAP first. Um, uh, that may be a, a local phenomenon, but the dental devices are typically uh, custom-made devices. So there's a, a commitment to that treatment if you go down that road, whereas a CPAP, you can do a trial, see if it improves symptoms, um, and then decide which treatment you want to proceed with from there. Um, when you talk about uh, when we talk about the upper airway um, surgical procedures, the best evidence exists for something called maxillomandibular advancement, so so multiple multi-stage surgery to protrude the jaw. Um, these studies have been done in carefully selected patients. So at this point, typically we would go to CPAP or an oral appliance and then um, have surgery kind of in our armamentarium, but it might come a little bit later in someone that doesn't tolerate uh, one of those treatments. Um, I think you know. I mentioned this disease severity as, as one major factor, but we have to think about other things. So obviously cost factors in when we're talking about what's covered and what um, what's available in, in different uh, provinces. Um, patient preference is a, is a big factor. Uh, at the end of the day, if someone's not going to wear a therapy uh, because they don't like it or don't want to wear it, 
um, then we're not going to see the benefit from it. So um, I think those are also really important considerations. So you use the word tolerate quite a lot. And what do you mean by a patient doesn't tolerate CPAP or a mandibular appliance? Um, generally speaking, these, these treatments, they're fairly straightforward to use. The CPAP would be a mask. It's on your face. It's strapped around your head and it's connected to a hose to a box, essentially, that blows pressurized air. The, the challenges there are, you know, for anyone that has difficulty sleeping with something on their face, that can be uh, quite a difficult thing to get used to. Although with some habituation and, and, um, and support, uh, many patients can overcome that. Some patients can end up with, uh, because it's blowing air, they can end up with dryness or nasal congestion. A lot of the CPAP devices now have humidifiers that help with that. Uh, and we can sometimes use nasal rinses or nasal steroids to help re- reduce those, uh, those side effects. You know, sometimes people have problems with mask fit, the mask leaks, or the straps have to be pulled too tight and they lead to headaches, those kinds of things. So those are the kinds of challenges that can occur. But the technology is really uh, advancing quite quickly to allow us to, to get past a lot of those things. When it comes to oral appliances, um, you know, first off, the patient has to have the right uh, dentition to be able to to have a device in their in their mouth. They have to have an adequate number of teeth, etc. Um, some people find that you know because it's pulling the jaw, that the way that the device works is by pulling the jaw forward. Uh, some people get a bit of pain in their temporomandibular joint. Uh, people can get headaches. They can get dryness of the mouth. They can get increased salivation. There's a number of different things, but um, um, sometimes it's it's a bit of just sort of um, being prepared for some of these side effects. Some of them are more nuisance and just need a bit of getting used to. Some of them can be a little more uh, troublesome. So again, back to sort of talking to the patient, um, understanding their, their other clinical problems and, and uh, deciding what's, what's right for them. Sachin, what about ongoing management of patients with obstructive sleep apnea? What should physicians keep in mind over the long haul? So, so there's a few points uh, to make here. I mean, the first is once a patient is started on therapy, uh, it's really important to to have early and consistent follow up to make sure that the treatment has the intended effect. And this is this is common to any chronic disease, and you know obviously um, relevant here for sleep apnea as well. Patients who wear their CPAP or on, have their oral appliance use their therapy are are going to probably notice some symptomatic improvement within weeks, sometimes even within days. Um, some of the other health benefits may take longer to manifest, but certainly the symptomatic improvement can can happen pretty quickly. But Again, really important here is that the patients are using the therapy. And there's actually, um, as we mentioned, some some difficulties with tolerating the therapy, but good evidence that early follow-up and, and support can actually improve adherence. So it, it does a few things for, for uh, when you see a patient who's got sleep apnea that's recently started on a therapy, um, you know, that early follow-up just provides an opportunity to reinforce the importance of the treatment and, and address side effects. Um, sometimes there are technical issues, particularly when you talk about a CPAP device. There's a machine basically with a hose and lots of connections. Um, you know, it, it's an opportunity on early follow-up to identify some of those things, um, you know, before the patient sort of gives up because it's technologically or technically too challenging to, to deal with. And that may just prompt a follow-up with the CPAP provider or the dental sleep specialist to address some of those those things. Um, you know, the other piece to follow is that if a patient or watch is if a patient isn't responding as expected, um, then, you know, it's an opportunity to review their sleep in general. It's really important when we talk about sleep apnea not to talk about it in isolation. Um, we want to think about the fact that there are many things that contribute to, uh, to uh, good sleep, um, you know, good sleep hygiene, good sleep pattern, getting enough sleep at night. Um, those are important things to address. And, and to the extent that some of those other things may be contributing to symptoms, um, you know, it's actually worthwhile exploring those because it's going to be difficult to unpack 
the, the whole, you know, their sleepiness, if you don't have a good sense of whether they have insomnia, another sleep problem, they don't get enough sleep at night, you're going to keep thinking the sleep, the CPAP's not working when in fact it, it isn't the problem. So um, really important to keep that, that broader perspective. Now, sometimes you go through all of those things, you troubleshoot the treatment, you um, look at the rest of their sleep, um, and you find out that they're just not responding as you would expect symptomatically. Well, at that point, you know, you can get downloads from the machines to see kind of are the, is it adequate treatment? Does the pressure need to be adjusted? Again, the, the, the provider, uh, the CPAP provider may be a helpful in this, uh, in this area. But then you can also look at um, is there another sleep disorder? Is there another medical, psychiatric, medication-related problem that, that um, you know, needs to be investigated further? Occasionally, repeat testing is indicated if you think there's been some significant change in the patient's disease. Let's say they've had a lot of weight gain or have some new medications on board, something like that. And about, at the end of it all, about 5% of patients have persistent sleepiness that's related to sleep apnea but hasn't improved with their treatment and they may need um, wakefulness-promoting medications, so stimulant medications, for example. But I think in general, when we when we think about sleep apnea, sometimes there's a tendency to look at it as uh, different from other chronic diseases because it involves devices as opposed to um, pharmacotherapy. But I, I think we, you know, we'd like to, to to change that so that people are looking at this as a chronic disease, just like any other, where you have to, you know, follow up with your patients regularly assess the treatment. Is it working? Are there side effects? How do those need, you know, what's the troubleshooting that's required there? Um, those would be the, the main things for follow-up. That's a great wealth of information. What would you say, if you were to think about everything that we've talked about today, what's the most important takeaway message for physicians who are treating patients with uh, suspected or proven obstructive sleep apnea? So um, I think I'd actually take a step back from from that and say that I think the recognition piece is actually the most important. So I started off by um, talking about, um, you know, the, the fact that the vast majority of patients are not uh, diagnosed. Um, I think that the recognition is important. This is a very common disease, much more common than most people realize. Um, and missing the diagnosis can potentially uh, deprive a patient of treatment that, that could mitigate health risks, but also improve their quality of life and their daytime function just on a day-to-day basis. And uh, as we talked about, there are many different ways that sleep apnea can present. So I think the main takeaway would be to have a high index of suspicion um, or at least explore whether sleep issues and sleep apnea in particular may be, uh, may be playing a role in uh, somebody's medical problem, um, um, even if they don't have the usual symptoms. Thanks for joining me today, Sachin. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Sachin Pendakar, sleep and respiratory physician at the Foothills Medical Center Sleep Center and Associate Professor of Medicine and Community Health Sciences at the University of Calgary. He co-authored a review article on obstructive sleep apnea published in CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've been listening to our CMAJ podcast, let us know how we're doing. Please leave us a rating on iTunes or give us your feedback on SoundCloud or any of our social media channels.